This afternoon's panel is presented in association with Planet Indigenous. A bit about Joe. Since 2005, Joe McMaster has been curator of Canadian art at the Art Gallery of Ontario, where he led his curatorial team in the reinstallation of the Canadian galleries. From 1981 to 2000, he was curator at the Canadian Museum of Civilization, where he curated, among other things, Indigena, 1992, Reservation X, 1998, and Edward Quattra, Canada's contribution to the 1995 Venice Biennale. And these foundational exhibitions established critical and articulate voice for Aboriginal artists in the contemporary art world. And uh, Dr. McMaster continued this work when, in 2000, he joined the Smithsonian's National Museum for the American Indian. During his tenure there, he curated First American Art, A New Tribe New York. I'd like to invite Joe McMaster to introduce today's panel and the panel. Uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thanks for being here today. Um, I hope this is going to be a glorious end to your day. I know that uh, this is the final day of a couple things. One is uh, it's the final day of Remix, New Modernities in the Post-Indian World. Also, uh, Planet Indigenous, which is happening now uh, primarily and particularly down at Queen's Peak. And uh, uh, Planet Indigenous is uh, one of the largest festivals of multidisciplinary of visual arts, of performing arts, of music, etc., for indigenous peoples today. So there's people that are from uh, Canada, U.S., uh, from uh, New Zealand, Australia. Uh, I'd also, uh, what I want to also do is acknowledge my wonderful group of panelists here today, and I'm going to go uh, talk about them a bit more in detail. So there's Sarah, Corsala, and Joe. I'd like uh, also to finally acknowledge uh, the work of some of the AGO staff, including Kathleen, who's just up here, and Julian McIntyre, both of the uh, education and the public programming department. So uh, let me ask a couple questions. I think what I want to do is just uh, take about 10 minutes, kind of introduce some of the ideas, and then I'm going to introduce the panelists, who will also have about 10 minutes or so to talk and then we'll leave the remainder of the afternoon kind of open for questions. So let me begin by asking a couple of questions, if you will, which I think will get us going. Do we do a disservice by having an Aboriginal-only based exhibition? That's one question. And what are the challenges that we face in with this kind of thinking? Of course, you all of you, I would expect that's what you hear, have read Sarah's article, which appeared in the Globe and Mail last spring. And the title of the article, Are We uh, Past the Age of the Aboriginal Exhibition, the Aboriginal Show? Whether or not you read the title or you bothered to uh, go beyond the title and read the entire article itself, the article uh, really set off a chain reaction of ideas and, and thoughts and, and some angry, some sort of critical in many respects. The Aboriginal art community, the curatorial community uh, began talking a lot, began writing emails to each other back and forth. It was around this time that Planet Indigenous, who I made reference to earlier, uh, came to us uh, about their programming uh, this, this summer. And uh, quite coincidentally, we found out they were closing today and 
also Remix was closing today, so we thought, and combined with the kind of ideas that uh, Sarah brought up in her article, we thought it was most appropriate just to begin talking about these kind of ideas and an opportunity to debate perhaps these issues. So what is wrong, I should ask, in having these Aboriginal uh, artists only based exhibitions? I guess my point that I'd like to make here this afternoon is that exhibitions of identity will always be around, okay? Um, so it should be pointed out that visitors to museums and art museums uh, often do not go to art museums because of who they represent, okay? We don't go because of our cultural identity. This has been written about. Uh, we don't go as a capital I. Okay, I don't go because I represent somebody. Many of us go because we are an explorer, we are perhaps experience seekers, we're perhaps spiritual pilgrims, professional hobbyists, or as somebody says, we go, we're small eyes when we go to the exhibitions. You know, this is why we go to the exhibitions. Themed exhibitions have always been around, and I'm assuming that young curators today are thinking about doing exhibitions. What am I going to do? Am I going to stop doing themed exhibitions, or am I going to continue doing them? Whether it's at the AGO or elsewhere, I think for artists themselves, they're going to ask themselves, am I going to stop looking at my culture, my background, who I am? Do I fall back on tradition if I'm not doing successfully in, in, in a greater art world? I think we should remember that it is artists' visions it is their view of the world that attracts us all, you know. But in the end, I think it is, it is really the bar of quality sometimes that we always fall back on or look at. And in, in many cases, of course, this is the artist. It's their final hurdle. Students, you in the audience, students of art, students of Aboriginal art, you know, hopefully you'll pick up in our discussion today about some new language that you haven't heard of before or express or extend the kind of language that you already know in new directions. For visitors who are visiting us because of Planet Indigenous, I'm sure you'll begin to find out just the how quickly and how uh, interestingly and how volatile the art world can be in these kinds of discussions about ideas and how subjectively critical it all can be in this debate. And finally, some of you who are here today from so-called general publics, uh, I hope that uh, your visit to this art museum or to any other art museum that you know will realize just how dynamic, how resilient perhaps, and how flexible these institutions can be in struggling and trying to debate these kinds of issues. So to me, exhibitions of identity will always be around. Let me uh, tell you a brief story uh, a number of years ago that I was involved in back in 1992. I, I did an exhibition called Indigena. I curated an exhibition with Leanne Martin at the Canadian Museum of Civilization. It was a groundbreaking exhibition for a number of reasons. First, it was an opportunity for us to gather Aboriginal voices from all across Canada, both uh, First Nations and Inuit. And we said uh, all somehow that we needed to say. Somehow, the voices were pretty strident. Other were, in other cases, quite critical in many respects, but they all wanted to say something about the Columbus Quincentennial. The exhibition also pressed some kind of structural and institutional change. 
which we think we've got. Now, remember, this is the Canadian Museum of Civilization, which is a human history museum. At the time, following this exhibition, when it opened almost the following day, Leanne and I were sitting around and said, you know, this is going to be the final group exhibition of Aboriginal art we're ever going to do. <laughs> um, well, that didn't last long, because a few years later, I did an exhibition called Reservation Maps. Whereas uh, Indigena was really about Aboriginal voice, the struggle for Aboriginal voice in institutions. Reservation X was much more focused on the problematizing of community. So it shifted quite radically from one to the other. I went on to curate other exhibitions, whether they were one-person exhibitions or they were historical exhibitions. Depending on the institution, I whether working in Museum of Ethnography, a Museum of Human History, or art museums, the structure, the influence, the ideas began to change. I did some exhibitions for the Drawing Center in New York City. I did a work on 19th century ledger drawings, which incidentally came to the Art Fair of Ontario about 10 years ago, some of you might be familiar with. I also did an exhibition on Novo Moriso. Again, no matter what institution, what kind of institution one works in, I think exhibitions of identity will always be around. Now, <clears throat> what about Remix? I think that's why we're here today. Jill Baker and I met a number of years ago. We began talking about uh, contemporary Native American artists. We wanted to do an exhibition on a new generation of young artists, the 30-something crowd that was out there because we were tired of talking to our own colleagues, or our own colleagues were breaking out in other directions. We also wanted to include not only just Canada, the United States, but because I was working in Washington at the National Museum of American Indian, we needed to go much more hemispherically, so we stepped across the border into Mexico. So we agreed to do the exhibition about that time. In doing so, and when we were doing this exhibition, I should remind you there was a couple conditions in which we were working and I was working at the National Museum of the American Indian in Washington. Now, these are two institutions uh, that are ethnically specific institutions, okay, and which focus on Native American art and culture. The second condition was that we we're in the United States. We we're working on a law that was called the Arts and Crafts Law, which I hope Joe will talk about a little bit later. The Arts and Crafts Law is a law that makes it unlawful for a Native American, or someone to call themselves a Native American artist in a public institution unless they are a member. Okay, They have to be a member of a federally or state-recognized tribe. Okay, Let me repeat that again. It is unlawful for an individual to call themselves a Native American artist unless they're a member of a federally or state-recognized tribe in the United States. So that was the second condition that we were working in. Uh, Remix wasn't so much a challenge, I believe, about this law. Maybe perhaps it was, okay, because, because we wanted to deal with so many artists. Uh, from Canada, United States, and Mexico, many, many different backgrounds with many ethnicities. 
which in some, to some extent may or may not influence their practice. In some cases, it does. Uh, it was also one of the reasons that we wanted to look at this term post-Indian. I know that we are in a state today in which we're talking about, in the age of Obama, we talk about a post-racial community. Perhaps today in Canada, we talk about a post-Indian community. After post-colonial, after post-modernism, after post-feminism, etc., etc. So these are many arguments that position that try to go beyond these kind of modernist dualisms, okay, of self and other, for example, okay. So when you see the remix, and if you've seen remix, you'll see that throughout the exhibition, there's a lot of discussion about politics, whether it's the construction of stereotypes and racism in gaming, such as the case of Alan Natichu, or it's the uh, miscegenation and uh, hybridity in the works of Najamir or Stephen Yazzie's construction and, and the look at uh, mixing in, in the future of Phoenix, the statistical future of Phoenix, or whether it's the U.S.-Mexico politics along the border, okay, in the works of, say, Hector Ruiz, or it's about the sexual politics of Kent Monkman, the gender politics, or, or even in the works of uh, Miller, uh, not David Miller, but uh, Brian. Brian Miller, sorry, Brian, <laughs> uh, if you look at his work. Okay, point is, exhibitions of identity, I think, will always be around in some form or another. So why did it come to the Archaeology of Ontario, where the discursive field and are different, okay, where the frames of reference are vastly different. Why did it come to the Archaeology of Ontario? I mean, the Archaeology of Ontario, these discursive frames that I've been talking about are of little interest. Identity is of little interest to institutions such as this. Perhaps questions of more new modernities, okay, may be of interest and played out not only here, but across the globe. But it also has related discourses of colonialism and post-colonialism, which I think we'll start to talk about. Art museums such as what is the Archive of Ontario or other institutions, I think we'll talk about globalism, hybridity, uh, we'll talk about quality, okay, we'll talk about criticism. These are kind of issues that somehow are very much a part of the discourse of the institution. Now, the Archive of Ontario opened its new building uh, with new exhibitions, new reinstallation just last fall. And in the new reinstallation, we began to look at a more expansive view of Canada, a more expansive view of what Canadian identity is. And that, that, that story, as you have seen now, includes First Nations, includes Inuit, and certainly greater representation by women. Okay, so that's the new story of the Archaeology of Ontario. As well, the Archaeology of Ontario instituted a number of guiding principles which will guide our programming, okay? Guiding principles such as diversity, forum, which we are all engaged in here today, responsiveness, responding perhaps to communities, the greater communities that are out there, creativity, relevance, what's the relevance of exhibitions and where we position today, and finally transparency, just what the heck are we doing? What are we going to be doing uh, for you? It is in this new context, looking at the history of Canada, 
And the Ontario Ontario wanted to say, okay, let's take a new step into a new direction. Let's bring in this exhibition called Remix, New Modernities in the Post-Indian World, which would then begin a new beginning for who we are. Exhibitions of identity will always be around. David Elliott, and I just want to close on a few things. David Elliott, who is the next director of the Sydney Biennale in 2010, and I want to quote him for a second. He says, quote, Sadly, our world has developed into such an unhappy place that we have come to regard the differences that we share as more a threat than a cause for celebration. And in the process, our many similarities have been completely submerged. We all have the capacity to be positive and negative, to be open or closed in our attitudes to the world. The choice is ours. Contemporary art, if it is to fit, it, uh, if it is any good, respects no limits and may touch on all our experiences and emotions. Because it is both separate and distanced from politics and everyday life, there is no real risk to opening ourselves to its complex and at times ambiguous suggestions. But still, we hold back. In the final analysis, our appreciation of culture, any culture, is conditioned only by our desire. There can be no limits to this unless, of course, we are all so insecure that we need to create them." Unquote. What museums? Okay, Art museums need to transcend race and ethnicity. But exhibitions of identities, I said, will always be around. In the short while that I've been at the Archaeology of Ontario, whether it is a redemptive moment to move past our history, our Canadian history of marginality, of discrimination, of complete annihilation and cultural erasure, I believe that my presence here at the Archaeology of Ontario marks a shift in some real time. I think Remix questioned, Remix questioned the modernist dualisms, as I said, of identity, of either you are or you're not. Okay, I think that's what we were questioning right off the bat. And I think we basically talked a very different way, one about composition, one about the complexity, the makeup of many backgrounds, and that how artists and how curators are inspired by many things. And no doubt this will be the way that I'm going to continue curating, this is the way that many of you may be looking at the world. This is the way that we did the Canadian wing, which I hope that you all will go see and get a sense of the kind of work that this institution is doing and the kind of discourse that we are all here today to talk about. So thank you very much for this opening remarks. What I'm going to do now is introduce our panelists one at a time. So I'm going to introduce Sarah just uh, so many of you, of course, know Sarah and, of course, largely responsible for this. <laughs> what Sarah is, of course, uh, of course, the, uh, the writer for the Globe and Mail, and has been there for a number of years, and perhaps more than any of us has perhaps seen all different kinds of exhibitions, has written about the exhibitions that fall into many, many, many different categories. And she also uh, was partially uh, uh, involved in an exhibition that came here about two years ago called Simpson Treasures, The Remarkable Journey of the Dundas Collection, which looked at uh, this remarkable exhibition of 19th century work from British Columbia, and she had a very, very important essay in there. 
And I think she struggled at times with the kinds of issues of identity, both in the past as well as today. Uh, Sarah's also been a former uh, editor of the Canadian Art Magazine, which of course you're all very familiar with, and uh, she's written extensively. So without further ado, uh, please welcome Sarah Milrod. Thank you all so much for coming. Can you hear me clearly? Um, I'm going to read because it's better writing than I am talking. So I'm going to discover with your forbearance. So I put together some thoughts um, for today. It's the fate of the newspaper critic to write in haste and to contemplate at leisure. Seldom, however, does the opportunity arise to explain fully what one intended or to refine one's thoughts at the time and have a chance to speak again or to have a dialogue with readers. So this is a singular opportunity for me, and I want to thank you, as of Ontario, for it. We're here to discuss today, I think, not so much the merits of this particular exhibition, Remix, about which I'm presuming the curators and I will agree to disagree. But rather to discuss the notion of the Aboriginal art show, and using that phrase, I know there's millions of other ways of expressing that idea, but that's the terminology I'll use. And whether or not this curatorial formation of the All Aboriginal Art Show, as we quoted the question about hybridity and ethnic identity and so on, for several decades now, a staple of the international museum world, whether this formation has run its course. In the course of the last two decades, we've come a very long way. Particularly in this country, Aboriginal artists have come to take their place in the front ranks of our country's commercial gallery and museum system. And thinking here of the award-winning films of Zacharias Kamuk, the videos and sculptures of Rebecca Belmore, sculptures and installations of Brian Newman, and other artists working at their level of achievement. As I mentioned in my review of Remix, these are artists who are circulating at the top tier of the international art world as well, showing their work at biennials and group exhibitions alongside fellow artists of all ethnicities, nationalities, and races. But what would happen were we to make exhibitions in which their art is considered principally in relation to their ethnicity? Brian Young's sculptures are about the commodification of Aboriginal culture, a very big and thorny issue for artists in beautiful British Columbia. But they are also, in a very sophisticated way, about the phenomenon of branding and about the European tradition of modernist sculpture to which Brian is also heir. Would framing a work principally in terms of his Aboriginal racial identity limit the scope of our understanding of it. Yanan has been reluctant to allow his work to be included in exhibitions of this sort, just as the black Vancouver artist Stan Douglas has tended to avoid being created into exhibitions about the black experience. These artists see such exhibitions as a trap, limiting the reading of their work. Likewise, the films of Zacharias Pinot, Atanarjulat and the journals of Knut Rasmussen speak with passionate clarity about the condition of Inuit culture, but they are also about the universally shared experience of love, family, sexuality, and struggle for power in communities, about spirituality and our human connection to the land. What would happen were that work to be contemplated only or primarily in relation to issues of Inuit identity? It would, I think, make the work seem smaller. The comparison that springs to my mind is to the history of art by women in the exhibition of it. There was a point in the 1960s when the all-woman show was essential, the curatorial battering ram to break down the barriers in a world 
where the role of women in art was to be the girlfriend. Walking through last year's touring exhibition, WAF, Women's Art and Revolution, which originated in Los Angeles and toured uh, throughout North America and landed at the Vancouver Art Gallery last spring. Walking through WAC was to be transported back to the moment of Judy Chicago and Faith Wilding and Mary Kelly, porcelain vaginas and macrame teepees and poopy diapers. All of work, by the way, which I enjoyed at various levels and <laughs> think was very important. This was battering ram work as women fought their way into the room, and it worked. The conundrum for women in the art world today is whether that all-woman show has become an outmoded form. Would an all-woman art show now, in our post-battering ram moment, do more harm than good? The same argument now surrounds the creation of museums devoted to women's art or the publication of books on the subject, which may initially have laid down the history where there had been none, but which now, 40 years later, seem to implicitly suggest that the talent of women is so fragile and besieged that it requires editorial or curatorial protectionism to prosper. Today, what I'm hoping yet is that we can talk about the benefits, and there are some, of a culturally segregated approach that was so necessary at a certain point in the development of a progressive, inclusive culture. I'm thinking here about the great landmark exhibitions of the early 90s in Canada, like Land Spirit Power at the National Gallery of Canada, or Gerald and Leanne's Indigena at the Museum of Civilization. But I'm mindful also of the, of the perils, and I believe there are some. Remix contains many works that are about the experience of being culturally hybrid, of working from an imaginative space between the white and Aboriginal world. But to my eye, many of the works point to these issues without being charged with fresh meaning, at times even seeming to pander to stereotypes. There is a distinction between making work that points to a certain cultural condition and making work out of a certain cultural condition that has something new and fresh and urgent to say. I didn't find that here. With a few exceptions, I didn't find the kind of compression of meaning or freshness of insight or personal revelations that are the hallmarks of consummate works of art. The conclusion that I came to, um, and I could only conjecture, was that the curators may have been responding to themes or issues touched upon by the work rather than to the objects themselves in the evaluation of their aesthetic merit or how they would interrelate with each other in the space with each other. And I think that this is an approach that uh, a concern can do more harm than good. Are we then finding ourselves in a moment when how the museum deals with art by Aboriginal people or people of part Aboriginal ancestry is shifting? I believe we are. I would like to acknowledge the space that we're standing in or sitting in here, um, a museum that has for more than a decade been at the vanguard of new thinking about how to create not a white narrative that makes way for the inclusion of Aboriginal voice, but a kind of braided narrative in which the museum brings together many cultural threads. Gerald and his team in Canadian Art, and with the guidance of Dennis Reed, for decades the AGO's chief curator and a real trailblazer in this area, um, they've undertaken several kinds of experiments that we can see in the museum today. There's one example in particular I want to draw your attention to, and many people here will probably experience this, the presence of um, the Northwest Coast clubs, rattles, masks, and other 19th century carved objects from the Dundas collection in the galleries that showcase also the paintings of Lauren Harris, Emily Carr, and Pauline Bourgeois. I suppose one could make an argument that the presentation of these objects with a, a rather a scarcity of ethnographic information, as was the wish of the donor family, 
this could be construed as an insult to the artist who made these uh, these objects or the Aboriginal nations who can claim these extraordinary things as part of their legacy. But I think the truth lies elsewhere. That the naked confrontation between, say, Lauren Harris's painting um, and the work of the artist who made the Tlingit mask that is the centerpiece of that gallery. But these two artists clearly are sharing an aesthetic response to their environment, the North, that is yielding some striking and unmistakable parallels. Up against each other, it's a draw who makes the more powerful statement about place. But personally, I put my money on this thing at Carver. Wordlessly, subtly, this juxtaposition does something to the viewer's perceptions of race and entitlement that no degree of text panels could ever hope to achieve. And when I say the viewer, I hope it's understood that I mean both the Aboriginal viewer and the white viewer and any other type of viewer that cleans himself in those beautiful galleries. My own thinking is, it's not too late for the Aboriginal art show or the show like this one, like Remix, that aims to explore the hybrid identity of many artists of Aboriginal descent who also share white heritage. As a social platform, the museum is far from done with its liberal humanist task of enlivening public discourse between divergent viewpoints and perspectives. And many artists of Abri Aboriginal descent still await the attention that they deserve from the greater public. But we are past the battering ram stage. Significant successes have been achieved, particularly in this country. And that changes the game. Now is the time for intellectual subtlety and fine discernment of quality. I did not experience this in remit, in remit but another critic would no doubt passionately disagree. The act of criticism is important to remember. There is no correct there is no correct answer in criticism, only the presence or absence of honesty, the presence or absence of experience in the field and careful looking, and the presence or absence of vigilance in examining the frame of reference one brings to the act of perception. There's much to talk about here today as we seek greater understanding together. Thanks, Sarah. Um, next, uh, I'm going to call on Salah Hassan, who is a Goldwyn Smith Professor and Director of the African Studies and Research Center and Professor of African and African Diaspora in Art History and Visual Culture Department of History of Art and Visual Culture at Cornell University. And both he and Sarah uh, were both outside of Toronto today and flew in, so I'm sure they're a little tired. Uh, but uh, here he is today. He served as uh, chair of the History of Art at Cornell University between 2000 and 2005. He's also a curator and art critic prior to joining the, the faculty at Cornell. He taught at the Department of History and Art at the State University of New York in Buffalo. So he is familiar with Toronto. He has been up here a few times, and uh, I'm sure in the middle of winter. <laughs> and uh, he's also taught at the University of Pennsylvania and the Department of Art and History and General Studies in the College of Fine and Applied Art at uh, Khartoum in Sudan. He is a founder and editor of NHK, NKA Journal of where is the, could you just uh, hold that up, please? This is the edit, uh, the journal, the NKA Journal of Contemporary African Art. Um, and he serves as a consulting editor for African Arts and Atlantica. Uh, uh, Salah has served as a guest curator in several exhibitions and authored and contributed 
to the companion catalogs and monographs, including Authentic Eccentric Africa in and out of Africa at the 49th Venice Biennale a number of years ago, and most recently Unpacking Europe at the Museum van Boymans, uh, Boymans van Wenningen in Rotterdam, an international exhibition organized by the city of Rotterdam. And if you read his uh, bio, it, it is quite lengthy. So without further ado, <laughs> I'm sure we're more interested in actually hearing him. So uh, will you please welcome Salah? Thank you. Uh, thanks so much, uh, Gerald. Can you hear me? I mean, am I? OK. Uh, thanks, Gerald, for the kind and generous introduction and uh, for the invitation. Uh, thanks to Joe Baker, too, and to Kathleen McLean for all the arrangement and uh, facilitating the trip, which is, you know, like the end of here. So it's a pleasure to be here, and it's, it's an honor to be part of this panel. And actually, just to have the chance to see the show remix, New Modernities in a Post-Indian World. Uh, I am, in a way, and this is not to be an apologist or in advance to justify my incoherence or uh, this joint <laughs> talk, but to say I'm seriously at a disadvantage because I did not see the show except about maybe half an hour ago. I mean, that's just for the mere fact that I don't live in Canada or, Tor or Toronto. Uh, but I'm aware of the issues uh, that the, the show raised or similar shows have raised in the past, and also through uh, Sarah Milroy article, which is, of course, central to the debate uh, today. My intention, uh, or my intervention, uh, to be so specific, would be a series of remarks, uh, and I hope uh, they are disjointed, as I said, they are fragmented in a way, but I hope uh, that they would generate more discussion, and, and I'm really making them in an effort to, uh, to respond to some of the issues that Susan, uh, so, sorry, Sarah's review has raised. And uh, some of the responses also that it generates in the uh, indigenous or the native uh, community. And, and in the process, I hope to actually draw from the, my experience uh, in the contemporary African field or my experience to highlight the African modernist or postmodernist experience in the art through interventions like in Car General of Contemporary African Art or through exhibitions that I've curated beside my own writing. Uh, there are, of course, some parallels. I can't claim that Africans are like indigenous communities. In a way, we share, as also we have our own indigenous communities, so to speak, and tensions with colonialism and the nation state. But I think what generates this debate is this tenuous, difficult relationship between natives, other minorities, Africans, and, and others with the nation state in the case of the United States or Canada or in Africa with colonialism and their own nation state because there is other parallels in terms of diversity and so forth. So exhibitions like this are, are certainly, if I can just give a context, are, are necessitated by a very well-known uh, legacy of exclusionary art history or art historical narrative that exhibitions like this or Africans or Native American, they wouldn't be separate if there was no such uh, 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 long legacy of exclusionary art history or art historical narrative. Uh, they are necessitated, uh, necessitated by, the, by, the, by the awareness and conscious uh, deliberate effort of, of the subalterns, so to speak, or the native or the minorities to insert themselves in that kind of map, to, to address uh, or to remedy uh, the legacy uh, of absence. And in that context, uh, 
whether Africans or, or, or indigenous uh, populations uh, across the world, they are at a disadvantage because it is not just about writing that art history. It's about creating the very raw material from which you can build that art history. Because as we know, exhibition, especially in the context of, of exhibitions around identity issues or identity politics or, or around African or minority issues, they are in a, an effort to do both, to create knowledge production, but to also to create the very raw material itself. Because as I always said, it is that if you don't exhibit, especially in the contemporary art world, you really don't exist. And that is, there is definitely a legacy, a legacy of inequality there that need to be addressed. So people have to have in mind that the, there is a specific history to this necessitated by the nature of the art world and the structural inequalities that are built into that. Um, but it's also, whatever happened today, people have to understand if it's happened as a result. Any gains, they, they are as a result of a long history of a struggle uh, in addressing those uh, structural inequalities in many levels, including creating the very raw material, but also creating the very discourse that can create that kind of a new art history. And in that effort, I think the final game was not really, uh, or, or, or aim was not really to create another center or another exclusion history. It was really to, to, to expand the narrative, so to speak. At least that has been my position and from what I understand of many colleagues uh, around this table. So let me also just refer to an incident that I think was very telling, was very telling to me about the state of the art world today. And I say it because I was involved in it in a personal way, but it's also because it is related to Canada. I recall in the late 80s, early 90s, I was called by the Royal Ontario Museum. Uh, you know, about two colleagues, uh, we came uh, because we were invited to look into the confrontation between the African-Canadian community and the Royal Ontario Museum around the show Into the Heart of Africa. A show that was as described uh, uh, by the curator herself, uh, Jill Canizo, as a, a self-consciously postmodernist one that was uh, uh, tried in a way to critique the museum itself. I mean, it came out of the development that happened in the field of museology, in the field of anthropology and, and reflexivity and so forth, that was consciously made to critique the history of collecting in relation to colonialism, and especially in the context of the fact that Canada was never really claimed to be a real colonial state, but that show specifically showed that. But the surprising result, of course, is that the African-Canadian community labeled that show, protested it as a racist. And, and so I wanted to read you a very interesting um, quotation that I thought will, will sum up some of the issues and that will help me jump into what I really want to talk about today in terms of what is it, what is the state of the art today vis-a-vis -vis these kind of shows, vis-a-vis -vis that kind of legacy of exclusionary history. And I'm, I'm giving a quote here by a Canadian writer, Eva McKay, uh, an essay in Public Culture in 1995, in which he said, and I quote, in the world of the late 20th century, global flows of populations and culture forms have politicized notions of culture, history, and identity. In this context, museums and other arenas of public culture attract new forms of sensitivity uh, and challenge by individuals and communities who speak for marginalized and often highly politicized social locations and identities. The dilemma for anthropologists 
and it could be for art historians, among others, and curators, is that just as our theories about the construction of culture and the invention of tradition reach new stages of sophistication, previously marginalized peoples are constructing heroic histories and mobilizing ideas about authentic identities and so as political strategies. They are pounding on the door of the representational stage, demanding not just images of themselves, but representations which are controlled and produced by representatives of the community. There have been fundamental shifts, and I'm continuing quoting her, within museology and anthropology in the last decade in response to what has been called by Ibn Said the crisis of representation. A diverse range of strategies has been proposed in order to deal with increasingly complex global and local realities. And of course, end of quote here is that in Canada, the whole policy of, of, of multiculturalism, which is with all its defects much better than the United States and other places, uh, is worth examining. Uh, of course, in connection to that, it's also worth examining new forms of resistance and control to the challenge that, and specifically the challenge that el uh, elite producers of culture and representatives uh, are mobilizing in the local, yet tra radically transformed representational arena. Um, and in the context of the Into the Heart of Africa, if one could just briefly sum up the, 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 uh, the confrontation, it was between the elite producers of culture in the context of the Royal Ontario Museums and the unexpected claim by the African-Canadian community to that collection and to speak for it, which is totally unexpected by the, uh, by the museum. Of course, at the time, it was what, what we can call today the subaltern started to speak back. But what happened in the last, let us say, because at that time, uh, at that time the, the African-Canadian community was, a, was, was, was actually accused by many critics and elites who are actually very progressive, liberal, like Jane Kanizuasa, who pushed actually for those kind of uh, critical uh, uh, exhibitions of ignorance about the museum, of being less sophisticated in understanding this kind of mode of deconstruction that basically was the, the essence of that, uh, the critical essence of that show, which is actually really as an academic when you see the show, coming from a progressive deconstructionist, postmodernist, let's say, perspective, you'll be very happy. But you have to ask yourself, what is it that makes the local Canadian community, African-Canadian community, lay claim and let alone also critique the show as, as, as racist? I think at the time, what is not understood by the museum is the legacy of exclusionary history of the museum and the institution itself. And when it, when it chose to have a show, it chose to have that show rather than really having series of shows that the community may have demanded in terms of to address that legacy of racism, which is what they wanted is a positive image of Africa. And so they had a totally different reading of the work, and I think it's much more sophisticated, much more complex than it has been represented. Of course, since then, there were a lot of good articles. Norbise Phillips, who's a Canadian critic, wrote a very good review of it, and Eva McKay, to uh, essay in public culture, I think, is great. But what happened in that period between 19, let's say, 90 and today? What happened is people like Gerald McMaster, myself, Joe Baker, and others, taking gradually control of the representation itself. An appearance of generations of people who started to write, so it's not about 
the subaltern started to see and read. It's the subaltern also writing back. It's the subaltern taking control of the representation, which was the demand of the Afro-Canadian community. But it happened in different communities. And from the African perspective, that was the motive behind some of the work that we did intentionally in, in, in Venice, realizing we are addressing a legacy of exclusion in history, but we are also know that we will be accused of creating another form of uh, exclusion in history. But we are also aware that what we do is remedial. What we do is not constructing another center, but we're trying to really expand the narrative, and that has been the tension. What happened today in response to that? Because in the, what I see today, and I'm not necessarily saying that's your position, Sarah, is that in general, uh, there was a sort of new conservatism as a reaction to that. And I see it really as a challenge that happened to the liberal progressive elites, especially white elites, who are at that time are the ones that are really taking control of opening that space. So suddenly they are challenged by people from a subaltern position saying that is all fine, but we also have our own view. We are also challenging that narrative that we still feel that part of it is hierarchical, part of it that can still put that kind of legacy of exclusion history when we are incorporated into or inserted into still derivative position. The challenge is how do really we look, how can we look today at the idea of multiple modernities and new modernities in a post-Indian world or a post-African or a post-nation, all of those are post-black. How do we really look at it? The challenge, of course, is not the acceptance of the fact that there are multiple modernities, which I think the art establishment have accepted. If you look at textbooks and others, there was always an inclusion of one chapter or another about the third world or Africa or indigenous community and so forth. But the challenge is that it's still in terms of the time and the space of these modernities. There is still that hierarchical position, and there is a challenge of how to address that kind of power structure. So I think what happened today, I've seen it in the latest biennials. I've seen it from curators who are really very progressive, very ready to cooperate in an earlier period when they are in a position of power. But when that kind of base of power has been challenged gradually by people from those minorities taking control of the representation, I think there is a new challenge to the outward that, that started to appear. Is that it's a challenge of a control of representation, and we wish some of the liberal and progressive position taken by the Arab elite retreated to a very conservative position that really said, let's not do political art anymore. Let's talk about process, let's talk about aesthetics. And that has been the nature, uh, the panel may agree or disagree with me, of the last biennial, in which this is where the Iraq war is raging still, thousands and almost a million Iraqi has been killed. The war in Afghanistan is continued. The, uh, the world is, there's a lot of new xenophobia, draconian laws about immigration, closing of borders, difficulty that even at the personal level I face and other people of color face, artists themselves, many artists could not come to Venice because of visa, just to give you a very cool example of visa to arrive. And yet, the binary curators will choose to say, you're really talking about process now. You're really not interested in political issues. So the, after Documenta by Okwe, there was a kind of a shift to saying, let's talk aesthetics, let's return to painting, let's challenge all of these new forms of politicized. 
This is what I see happening today, and that's what I really label as a new form of new conservatism. You can see this in other arenas. For example, and I, please stop me, Gerald, if I feel like I talk about it. I see it in, 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 in an area that I'm actually of personal interest, which is the representation of Islamic art or Muslim population in the context of the Iraq war and the post-September 11. What you see is a new type of Orientalism. And exactly what's happening in the art world is also transformed in the representation of what is considered contemporary Islamic art. There's a proliferation of interest in, in art by Muslim artists. Uh, there is all kind of art by Muslim women. There's a lot of interest in the veil and so forth. When you really look at it, it's like Orientalism reinvented again, and what can call really new Orientalism, in which the Muslim world is divided into two, into good Muslim, bad Muslim, as Mahmoud Mamdani would call it. Good Muslim, of course, are those who accept the Western project of modernity, new colonialism, those who praise secularism, those who will not resist, those who choose to accept all of these kind of pragmatic choices of being part of the so-called modern world that are labeled as modern. But from the other side, there's the bad Muslim, uh, who are considered anti-modernity or anti-modern. As you can see, they hate us, they hate our modernity, they hate their women. So there's a new form of also cons new conservative feminism and terms like Islamofascism, all of those things became part of that discourse. So what happened in the art world in terms of representation? You see that kind of being transferred into, or at least mutated into what I call new uh, orientalism that favored, for example, art by women. But even in choosing that, it is art by that idea, let us liberate them from, the, the women from their oppression. That's, that made Laura Bush becomes a feminist, for example. So, so these are the kind of things that, that are interesting that are happening. But what you see in those kind of, the typical thread is like the war on terror program is transferred also in the context uh, of the art world, where there's a favor, favoritism of artwork that is less political. Even uh, if some of you may have seen a show that's called Without Boundaries, where works by Mona Hatoum that is very political, get an interpretation that is mostly in the context of relating to the general art world, minimalism and other issues, but to the neglect of the political context of it, especially her work about the Kufiya, uh, which is typical of what the Palestinian, become a symbol of Palestinian nationalism. Choices, let's say, from an artist who's highly political, like Emily Jasser, to choose the less political rather than the confrontational work that may embarrass the museum or certain corner, quarters uh, in the uh, funding community, and so forth. So you'll find the, the, in every, everywhere there's a kind of a new conservatism and a return to aesthetic, which is really, a, no one is against, because I think what, what uh, the critique uh, that, that, that uh, Yusera made in terms of the show, and if one could uh, just summarize it briefly, it's about you know the lack of vitality comparing this show to the vitality of traditional culture, each of the weak choices not hybrid enough, not dynamically hybrid enough, or one of the points that, that you raised, and not adding so much uh, to what the mainstream has already accomplished in terms of new uh, form of, how would I call it, authentic or, 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 or hybrid. So I'm not saying that these translate into that kind of, of new, but, but then it, it, it brings in the issue, and, I, and I'm afraid that the risk in bringing this is, is really put them in parallel or similar or equivalent to those kind of arguments in which uh, suddenly 
the quality, which is not contested, that is very important, and I think it's the role of the critic to point to the people who advocate or come from a political background, because it's actually, being political is actually necessitated by the nature of belonging to those kind of groups, because that history is like the black body. It's almost impossible to be politicized in terms of representation, which makes it very difficult to read it anyway. So let me just end by saying that that kind of critique uh, begs these kind of comparisons and really to take a critical look at what is it that we are about today when we think about Because in conclusion, one could say that I think shows about identity will continue for our, or around identity policy will continue. I don't have any problem with them for as long as there are structural inequalities and other issues, this kind of exclusion narrative was not addressed. But what is really needed, and I just wanted to end up with this, the challenge to the idea of this multiple modernity, because it's accepted, but the way it's accepted is still need to be further investigated. Are we, what about the time and space of modernity? What about the hierarchy within that kind of structure of accepting the idea of multiple modernity? But I think what is more really a challenge for me or for people that I think in my position is the issue is what the institutions really raise as a limitation. I'm not sure if this is the case in Canada, but what I find that the preference for such shows, for example, like Remix, like Africa Remix, like uh, Seven Stories about Modern Art in Africa, all of those shows, is the preference by many institutions is for these kind of thematic shows, rather than shows that I think these have a role to bring to the table. They have a role in knowledge production. But there is no, there is total kind of, uh, uh, kind of opposition to shows that are about more kind of a serious knowledge production at the level, let's say, of retrospective of, let's say, indigenous artists. Because I have been struggling with a show of a Sudanese artist called Ibrahim al-Salahi. Very important artist for a long time. I have approached every single British museum and perhaps every single African art museum in this country or does African art to try, I mean I'm talking about this country next door, the United States <laughs> um, and then they will say but it will not sell audience would be a problem I talked to the, Barb, uh, to the uh, Hayward Gallery for example two years ago for accepting that show and he's an artist who's living, he's lived in London. He has been productive from the 40s until today. He's in late 70s now. And I think he's as productive as any great Western artist, whether it's Sarah or uh, anybody that you can get, her, Richter or anybody that you can think of, because I know his work. And I know her work is really seen and given the chance would make the same impact. But the Hayward Gallery refused said, we already had Africa remix this year. We can have another African artist. He's not well-known entity. And then they had a show for Rebecca Hall. And the argument was audience. I went to the Rebecca Hall show, and I could tell just a handful of audience in about two to three days that I went there just to meet the, the curator that I'm hoping so that I can get the show. And it was not really in a month that will not probably exceed 200, 300, 400 audience, unlike Africa Remix. So sometimes institutions have to take a risk 
to get there. And I think the risk is really to move from just the thematic shows, which I'm nothing against, to retrospective, let us say, shows that are really about taking the career of one artist over decades and showcasing it. So I'll end up with this, and I hope I didn't take, I'm sure I took too much time. It's maybe okay. the teacher in me. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. You are our guests, so uh, we don't mind. <laughs> All right. Um, I'd like to introduce Joe Baker, who is a colleague of mine in the exhibition of Remix. Joe is an artist uh, whose work I've seen years ago. He's an educator and curator. Uh, he's currently the director of community engagement at the uh, Arizona State University Herberger College of the Arts and has uh, a very distinguished career in arts advocacy. So that's one of the reasons we have him here today. Uh, when I met him, uh, he was the Lloyd Kevin Curator of Contemporary Art at the Herbert Museum, where he actually pioneered quite a number of engaging underrepresented artists in, in throughout the U.S. Uh, in a series of exhibitions. Um, he also did a very interesting exhibition called The Holy Land, and I would hope that he speaks about that at some point later, in which he, as I was mentioning about the conditions of the Herd Museum, which is a very ethnic-specific institution, which is about Native American art and culture, uh, Joe did an exhibition called The Holy Land, which brought artists from various parts of the world who have relationships to the desert. Art, Israeli artists, I think, from Lebanon. Uh, he even had uh, Thomas Joshua Cooper, who I'm not sure how he fits into a desert, but now he's currently now in Glasgow. <laughs> but uh, he does come to the U.S. So uh, what I'm saying is that Joe has managed to go beyond, I think, as, as uh, Salah was saying, going beyond the discourse of certain ethnicity has been very specific, but beyond and looking without. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Joe Baker. Okay. I, I want to begin today in a very personal way. My name is Joe Baker, and I'm an enrolled member of the Delaware Tribe of Indians. My name is Joe Baker, and I was born of a Delaware mother for a father who was Dutch-English. My name is Joe Baker, and I'm an artist curator. The point in my introduction is that identity is a complex, layered subject and one that touches all of our lives today, whether we want to admit it or not. My identity, being of mixed race, is not a matter of art world trends, but rather something that I go through each day. Shifting identities are part of the human experience. Indian communities in the United States government have defined American Indian identity. My ancestors, the Lenape, or as we were later called the Delaware, were among the first Indians to come in contact with the Europeans, the Dutch, the English, the Swedes, in the 1600s. Our original homelands were located along the eastern seaboard, including all of present-day New Jersey, southeastern New York, including Manhattan, south into Pennsylvania. We are known as the first treaty tribe having signed a treaty with William Penn in 1778. We hold five treaties with the U.S. government and have maintained government-to-government -government relations with the U.S. since that time. Well, almost. We'll get to that later. 
there were five removals from our original homeland, first to lands in Ohio, then to Indiana, Missouri, to the last Federal Reserve in Kansas, and finally into Indian Territory, present-day Oklahoma. One small band of Delawares left our group in the late 1700s and through different migrations are located today in Anadarko, Oklahoma. Small contingents of Delaware are uh, fled to Canada during a time of extreme persecution and today occupy two reserves in Ontario, the Delaware Nation of Moravian Town and the Muncie Delaware Nation. The Department of the Interior, due to disputes with the Cherokee Nation, has put our tribe's federal recognition in question twice in the last 30 years. In 1979, the Bureau of Indian Affairs chose to ad administratively terminate the Delaware tribe. The act of termination was at the request of the Cherokee Nation, who cited an 1866 treaty with the U.S. government and an 1867 agreement with the Delaware tribe over land purchases within the jurisdiction of the Cherokee Nation. Federal recognition was restored by the U.S. Department of Interior in the 1990s, terminated by the 10th District Court of the Supreme Court in 2005, causing devastating loss of services to our home community, and restored again by the Department of Interior August 2009. Identity is not static, but rather fluid, shaped by community, personal desire, and social and political realities. Remix features the work of 15 artists from across the Western Hemisphere. Collectively, these artists explore the global movement of ideas, search for a new language of artistic practice, and push the boundaries of the expected. They are representatives of both rural and urban experiences. Some of the participating artists explore traditional culture, while others skip over cultural reference entirely. The exhibit originated at the Heard Museum, Phoenix, Arizona, whose mission is to educate the public about the heritage and living cultures and arts of Native peoples, with an emphasis on the peoples of the Southwest. A very traditional and conservative museum, Remix proved to be quite a stretch for the administration, board of trustees, but also the membership. Being Indian at the herd is still defined by narrow margins. Why are Mexicans and blacks showing at the herd? In development for over five years, we tested the outer limits of what could be tolerated at two institutions. Individuals threatened not to renew membership until the herd museum came to its senses and started showing real Indian art. Several members of the guild, the docent group of the museum, resigned after long tenure or refused to tour such an exhibit. Remix was not created for an audience, critics, curators, or for institutions. The exhibit was created for the artist, a reconquista, a reclaiming. In many ways, it proved to be a declaration of a group of artists who acknowledge and recognize one another, self-critique, going well beyond personal needs. It speaks to the complexity of community. Is the exhibit uneven? Of course it is. The selection is self-consciously broad in terms of voices, experiences, and aesthetics. 
we wanted to represent the wide diversity of expressions and concerns that span social engagement, the conceptual and representational, figuration and abstraction, the revision of our history, investment in popular culture, and the essential question of identity. Some of the participating artists are at the very beginning of their careers, while others have participated in prestigious international exhibits and biennials. In keeping with the idea of multiplicity, the works serve as a vehicle for the transmission of culture. The result is not a new signature, but a new hybrid, a collective voice. Thank you very much.